You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Last week, I want to give a quick recap, or as quick as I can. I wanted to take us back to the foundation, which is who God is. Not necessarily what he does, but who he is. I feel like going back to the foundation is important, especially if we discovered any kind of dysfunction or recurring issue like in our life or misunderstanding about God that's just panning out into you know, difficult things in your life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your wife. Um, <laughs> and to go back to the foundation, because if we understand who the Lord is, if we're looking at Jesus, it straightens out our foundation so that we can begin to build off of a proper structure. And so I wanted to go back to even before uh, creation, um, we know from last week, I covered how Jesus made all things. He is pre-existent. He is preeminent. The gospel writers all took turns talking about this. Um, but Matthew, actually, he went back to Abraham to give like the backstory of Jesus. Mark goes back to John the Baptist to fill in like, you know, the backstory of Jesus. Luke goes back to Adam. But John was like, I have to go back even further. And he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And in case that there was any kind of confusion about who the word was, he goes on to say, and the word was made manifest and he walked among us. He dwelled among us. He was right here with us. And um, that, that word with isn't just like, I'm with this guy, we're walking the same direction. That word with, the word was with God, is pros, P-R-O-S, which has a connotation of being face-to-face, turned towards one another. And I brought uh, Derek's and Daniel up here to demonstrate that, how they were, the father and son from before creation were turned towards each other. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with the Father. Pretty cool stuff. Um, I love how John goes back to before creation. There's great wisdom in this because it shows us, how do I say this? We, if, <laughs> we end up loving him for who he is instead of what he's done. So like he goes back before he did anything awesome, did anything great, and he begins to show us who this amazing God is so that we can begin to fall in love with him before he's done anything great for us. Um, Because if we're just loving someone because they did something great for us, it's a shallow kind of love, right? We, we want to be obsessed with this one thing, this looking at Jesus and being just enraptured in ecstatic joy by the beauty of who he is, what he's like, not just what he's done, although what he's done is amazing. I don't want to lessen it whatsoever, but if we were to really go back to the foundation, it's before he's done anything and he's already worthy and he's already beautiful and he's already holy. Um, I wanted to add in here something real quick. It's really hard to have a real friendship with someone that you're trying to get something from. Or, or vice versa, if you, you know that they're trying to get something from you. For instance, um, it'd be like, 
David Luck, he's a good friend of mine, but what if I, let's say I invite him over to my house one evening just for me and him to hang out. And, but before he comes, I hit him up on the phone or, or send him a text. I'm like, hey, before you get here, can you bring us some burgers? And David's amazing. He's my buddy. He'd be like, yeah, of course. And then like two nights later, I'm like, hey, man, we should really hang out. And he's like, yeah, we should. And I text him right before <laughs> coming over to my house. I'm like, hey, man, can you pick up some pizzas? And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course. And because he's my friend, we already established friendship. But if I keep on doing that, would you come so that you can bring me something? He's going to start to wonder if he's my friend or if he's my food deliverer, right? <laughs> So real love is self-giving, and the greatest love is when we lay down our lives for someone else. Can't get anything in return. You just love them. You do anything for them. Okay, um, let me keep on going through this recap. Um, so the father and son, they were completely satisfied in themselves. They already loved one another. The Trinity already had it going on. They had this amazing party, this fellowship of love, self-giving, self-revealing, other-centered, not self-centered. But there came a moment when, like, because they are love, because he is love, because Yahweh is love, they're like, we have to expand this party. There are other, we have to we have to create objects of our affection that can experience this love too. And there comes Adam and Eve, formed in the image. He made them in his image, male and female. He made them. And um, this is about the end of the recap here before we get to some new stuff. You know, for Ashley and I, we came to a point in, in, in our marriage where we were already very happy with one another, but love compelled us to multiply. And, you know, our kids, we didn't have them so that they could give things to us, did we? Parents, you know what I'm talking about? It was probably a billion acts of selfless love on our part before we even got a thank you from one of them. You know, parents, you can testify that moment when they're like one year old or something and you like feed them some food and they smile at you and, and you start crying. They're like, you appreciate me. <laughs> <clears throat> That's how the Lord felt tonight when we worshiped him. <laughs> <laughs> he appreciates being appreciated, but you can't outgive God. He's not interested in getting something from. It's like, what do you give dad on Father's Day? He's already got every tool and every tie. So what are you going to give dad on Father's Day? All he wants is your heart. That's why when kids scribble down something cute and beautiful about how they love dad and some, get, make some ridiculous gift and give it to dad, it's, it's like way more awesome than when they just get another tie. Dad already has a tie. Our father has the cattle on a thousand hills, okay? The only thing that he can't in his love, in his affection, in his nature, the only thing that he won't do or doesn't already own is access to your heart. He owns everything, except for he will not force his way through your heart. Yeah. The one thing that you can give him is, Daddy, I love you. 
and you can open your heart to him. Ah, Jesus, we love you so much. Mm. So uh, Ashley and I expanded our party. Here's two of our little party crashers down here. We've got, we've got four kids. We love them like crazy. And uh, I, I know that they trust me implicitly. And they, they own my heart. I own their heart. They own my heart. But I made this, I talked about this last week. If you weren't here, I just posed this question. What if a manipulator entered our lives and convinced my daughter, Evelyn, or made her question my intentions towards her as a father, made her question my good nature towards her, and it had serious damage, damaging ramifications on her life. Let's say for the rest of her life, she actually had an issue trusting me. Let's say for the rest of my life, I had to go through extra lengths to try to prove to her that I was a good, good father and had her best interests at heart. That manipulator, I would be enraged at because he made it so that my daughter disconnected her heart from me. And in the garden was the serpent and he was more cunning than the rest. And he convinced the father's sweet daughter, Evelyn, to question the good intentions and good nature of the father and for the rest of the history of mankind, our good, good father has been going to great lengths to redeem his image in our minds. And who do you think his anger is directed towards, his holy anger? If he had a moment where Eve and the serpent were standing next to each other, who's gonna take the wrath? The manipulator or his daughter who is manipulated? You start to ask these questions. Is God more concerned with what we did to him or with what the devil did to us? If you start pondering that question, it'll light you up for a long time. Amen? Okay, moving on. Guys, please complete this most famous statement about the nature of God. You ready? God is... Love, yes, come on. Most of you said love, I heard good, I heard ruler, I heard creator, all that stuff is amazing, but most of us shouted out God is love. Do you know where it says that in the Bible? Yes, I love me some Bible scholars. Uh, Extra point, if you can tell me the reference. Four? 4-8, woo, good job, guys. Okay, so let me read it for you. Let's actually start at 4-7. 1 John 4-7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Next verse. Whoever does not love does not know God because, shout it out now, God is love. So why is Jeremy talking about the Trinity so much? Why why is this so important to him? Uh, Isn't the Trinity just something that's reserved for theology buffs and seminary dissertations and pastors with too much time on their hands? Like, what's the deal with talking about the Trinity? Well, how do we know that God actually is love? 
if God was singular and alone in the universe before creation, how could we confidently run to him and know that he's love? Can someone who's alone be love? Doesn't love in and of itself necessitate a beloved to show that it is love? Doesn't love in its nature, in its essence, other-centered? If God was alone, how could we know that he is good? It'd be like you, you, he never had an opportunity to show his goodness to another. And so this is why the Trinity has to be at the center of our understanding of, of God. Before he created anything, he was Father, Son, Holy Ghost. They had it going on. They had an amazing fellowship of love, have an amazing fellowship of love. Nothing will ever break their amazing fellowship of love. God has other names though, right? I mean, some of the most famous ones would be uh, creator. So if God was primarily creator though, wouldn't he need, need creation to be who he is? Or God is, is, he's ruler, right? Yes, he is ruler. But if that was his nature, then wouldn't he need, wouldn't rules need to exist and people to follow the rules for him to be the ruler of creation? And let's take it a step further. If, if he is primarily ruler, are you guys hanging with me? All right. If he is primarily ruler then what's the best salvation that he can offer us? Wouldn't it just be that he treats us as if we didn't break his rules? He just acquitted us? He said, and, and at that point, if he treated us as if we didn't break his rules, the greatest form of love that we could muster up is gratitude, right? Gratitude is great, but gratitude ain't love. If God is like ruler, think of it like a, like a traffic cop. Say you're speeding. I don't know what that's like, but Ashley told me one time that... <laughs> Let's say you get pulled over by a, a police officer. This is the one who enforces the rules. He is uh, a uh, representative of our government. And let's say, so he pulls you over comes up to the window, and this never happens, but this police officer says, you know what, you look like a nice guy. <laughs> I'm just going to completely let you off the hook, even though you're going 20 over. <laughs> what would your reaction be? You'd be very grateful, but do you love him? He's the one that invented that rule to begin with, right? If he's letting you off, he's just letting you off of something that he created, so, yes, God is creator. Yes, God is ruler, but he is love, and he creates from love, and he rules from love. He is a king of love. Hmm. Guys, I believe that this is the one thing that David was obsessed with looking at, 
This is before Jesus manifested in the flesh, right? You can actually find Jesus in the Psalms. You can find Jesus in Isaiah. He's there. The prophets prophesy of him. He even arguably makes some cameos in the OT. And so (laughs) David, in Psalm 27, he's saying he's obsessed with this one thing. I just want to gaze on his beauty. And he's, he's talking about the beauty of his throne room to dwell in that place. And the, son, the sons of Korah in Psalm 84, they say something really similar. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand else. I just want to be a doorkeeper. I just want to be in this place of beauty. I want to look at you. Just look at you, Jesus. And we become what we behold because we were made in his image as his sons. And the more we look at him, the more we take on his nature. And the more we want to look at him, and then the more we take on his nature. And the more we want to look at him. And it's this, it's this amazing scene of the father loving the son and the son loving the father from before creation. This is the one thing that will light us up for all of eternity. You know, um, there are other gods uh, that people claim exist and people worship on the planet. One of them is called Allah. So like the, the, the best worship that a follower of Allah, a Muslim, the best worship that they can muster is gratefulness. They can, they can serve him as much as they can. But there's no religion out there that preaches a, a triune God who birthed humanity out of his love and rebirthed us because of his love and that we'll live forever with because of his love. See, the, the Muslim's position de- depends on performance. You guys ever been in a place where you felt like your position depended on your performance? That was a lot of peace. <laughs> That doesn't feel like family, does it? It doesn't feel good. You kind of feel expendable, don't you? And it's a fear that drives you and not a love. And fear is a motivator. Fear will motivate some effort, but fear will not motivate great effort. The greatest motivator is love. You know, a lover will outwork a worker any day. I don't believe that any great athlete became the greatest because they feared rejection or they feared not being good at something. You don't become the greatest. You don't become the, the, the goat, greatest of all time, who is arguably Michael Jordan. <laughs> you don't become the greatest of all time if you just feared looking bad. Or if you just feared not having something that you're good at, if you just feared rejection, you have to have a love for the game. Because that fear won't motivate you when you have a pulled hamstring and it's raining outside to go to practice. There has to be a love. Now, fear has a lot of wisdom. Fear is actually the beginning of wisdom. You guys know that reference out of book of Proverbs, fear or reverence of the Lord is the beginning of, the, of wisdom, but it doesn't say it's the end. The greatest wisdom is love. A lot of us came into relationship with God 
or came into the kingdom out of reverence or awe or even fear. We feared, we feared what would happen if we didn't end up with him or we, we feared what life could look like if we, if we didn't get things straightened out and the only person we knew to call to is God. And so there was a fear that motivated us or maybe you can call it an awe or a reverence, but that is the beginning of wisdom, and the moment you get through those doors, you realize that you're not working for a boss, that you've been saved by a father instead. See, our calling is as sons. This is another reason the Trinity is so important. When you see the way the father loves the son, you can rightly insert yourself into every one of those scriptures from now on. He looks at you the way he looks at Jesus. The righteousness and the beauty, the obedience. That righteousness has been imputed. It has been, in, it has been transferred to you. We are 100% assured of our irrevocable position in this family as kids. And... Guys, from this place as sons, the most amazing fruit just pops out of our life. It's almost like it's on accident. But you know, when you focus on the works, it's like really hard to get the works, right? It's really hard to get the fruit when you focus on the fruit. But if you just stay connected to the root in love, it's almost as if miracles and transformation and reformation and cool things and salvations just like happen just like fly out of you. Fruit's just popping off of you left and right. And it happens on accident almost as much as it happens on purpose. See, the Trinity shows this father-son dynamic. Jesus is just, it, it almost looks like he's just walking around being free accidentally, like healing people. He, he literally did accidentally heal one person one time. It's in there. Like that woman <laughs> reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. He's like, whoop, freebie. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not what he said. He said, who touched me? But you, but you can go read the, read the Bible for yourself and realize that I'm wrong. Um, so our calling is to be sons. In fact, my good friend Ryan Crowell brought this up the other night. He said, when you see the word calling in the Bible, it's almost always an identity word. It's you're called to be a son. Calling is not a task-oriented word. In other words, we can, we can use the word like, I just feel like you're called to do this or that, but another way to say it is you're called as a son, and as, as a result of that, you're going to be doing these amazing things. Are you with me? Okay. Jesus said in John 5, 20, the father loves the son. What confidence. Don't you guys want to walk around with that kind of confidence? Say, the, the father loves me. And when the accuser comes by, you're like, the father loves me. Like, did you forget who I am? The father loves me. The father loves the son. The father loves these daughters. Another one a lot like that is, is John 17, 24. Jesus says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think that there's probably no greater place that shows the beauty of the Trinity than the baptism of Jesus. 
I love this scene so much. One of my favorite ones is, is in Luke 3. It, it actually happens in all four Gospels, which if you don't know, it's, it's bizarre for a parallel story to be repeated in all four Gospels. But there it is. It's the baptism of Jesus. And it says that when he is baptized, he comes up out of the water and the Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. That's what it says in Luke 3. The reason I love Luke 3 is because it adds in in bodily form. The Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. So he's... (laughs) I told you I'm goofy. So (laughs) he's got the dove... resting upon him. And then a voice speaks from heaven. It says, the heavens open, the dove descends in bodily form on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, what? This is my son whom I love. And right there, you see father, son, Holy Ghost, the greatest family with the most. They are (laughs) in this moment showing that they, the three of them exist apart but within, not separated but apart, distinct in their existence but unified in their mind. And there's, it's, it's, It can be a little hard to describe because people want to describe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the things that they do differently from one another, but there's so much overlap that it's hard to do, but uh, it's fun to think about because like Jesus, or I should say the Holy Spirit, he's known to be like the comforter, the guide, the convictor, but Jesus was good at those things too, Right. Right. He's a good guide. He was a good comforter and he's a good convictor. We saw him do it. And it's not like the Holy Spirit chimes in and says, whoa, 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 Jesus. (laughs) Remember, you catch him and I clean him, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They are very, very similar. There's so much overlap in what they do. And it's just beautiful. Um, I've got just a few minutes. I want to show... just where, where we fit in now in this beautiful dance of the Trinity. What do firstborn sons usually get? Let's say the father of this family is a business owner. He's wealthy. He's a success, successful guy. He has a firstborn son. What does a firstborn son get when the father passes away? Inheritance. Inheritance. Historically, the firstborn son, it's, it's not just that he gets an inheritance. It's that he, he then is like considered like his dad. He's given uh, controlling interest in the company. He is entrusted with the affairs of the family. He is like the executor of the estate now. And so Jesus is the firstborn son and his daddy is CEO of the universe. And Jesus wanted the inheritance to pass to his little brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is our older brother. And rightly so, all the inheritance of the heavens are to pass to him. But he says, you know what? 
I really want to get them all back in the family. Not just all back in the family, but empowered and in position and with all of the riches that they need. And so Jesus, is, he concocts this plan with the father and he says, let's bait Satan into killing me. So that we can get them all back. And Jesus, a will isn't inaugurated until someone dies, right? So Jesus goes in the ground and being the father, being Yahweh also, the will is inaugurated. And being the older son, he dies. And so the inheritance passes to us. Isn't this amazing news? This is the opposite of the story of Jacob, the usurper, the supplanter, the grabber of the heel. Remember, Jacob was the second-born son, but he wanted the inheritance so much that he deceived the older brother to get it. And this is that in reverse. We are the unworthy, wandering younger son. This is the prodigal son story flipped upside down. One time the father showed me that the prodigal son story, he wrote that in there with an open ending so that we could make the connection that we actually have a really good older brother instead of the bad older brother in that story. What if that story read more like this? This unwise younger brother goes to his father, demands his inheritance, and roams off into distant lands, squanders the money with horrible living. He's perverted in his mind and completely selfish in his desires, and he, and he squanders all the glory, all the inheritance that the father gave. And instead of an older brother like we have in the prodigal son story in our Bible, that older brother who's, who's like, he's at home working and just judging his younger brother and saying, what an idiot, I'm not going to give up what I'm supposed to be doing here. I hope he gets his up and comings. Instead of that, our older brother is Jesus and he goes to the father. And the father and son conspire together and they're like, we got to get him back. Will you let me go to distant lands? and get him back. And Jesus comes and he finds us in the pig pen, hung over from the night before with our face in the mud, thinking about eating pig food. And Jesus, he, this older brother, he finds us and he gets down on his knees and he whispers into our hungover ear and says, me and dad want you back. I paid your debts. Let me help you up. Do you need me to carry you? And as all of humanity is wrapped up into the Son, we were crucified with Christ. He then ascended to the Father. And, and we run with Jesus towards the Father while the Father jumps off the porch and runs towards us and the family's back together. That is who we are in the Trinity now. We're wrapped up in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. Let's stand and pray.